Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, the 18th of April, 2012, and our special guests today are John Hunter and Chris Farina. Welcome to both of you. Hey, thank you, Steve. Coming in by telephone, so there is a short delay. You can hear that. The two of them can't see it, but on our screen we're seeing a picture from the film, and um, there are two pictures. Uh, John is the teacher who's going to talk about the this game that he um, uh, has developed over a long period of time, and Chris is the filmmaker director um, who's who's created this film that's coming out on uh, American Public Television in May. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, and we appreciate the support of Blackboard Collaborate for providing this environment. Coming up, uh, if you haven't noticed, it is the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0, and it's just really been fun to look at the projects that have come out of this. The Crowdsource Book Project. Uh, Classroom 2.0, the book, is in full swing. The deadline for submissions is this Saturday. Uh, we've got a ton of great submissions. If you're still interested in submitting, please feel free to do so. Everything will get published. We're excited about it. Also, we're doing a special Ed Incubator program with PBS NewsHour. Uh, both of those are available on the top links at classroom20.com. Coming up at ISTE, if you're going to attend ISTE, we have uh, also five years of our terrific crowdsource shadow activities that take place at ISTE um, that we call ISTE Unplugged. Please do go to isteunplugged.com to see all of the fun. It starts with an all-day unconference the Saturday before ISTE that is really a blast, usually two to 300 people, um, many of whom you'll have only known through the internet will be there to, to gather and have great conversations. And then many other activities. Uh, a we have a new three-hour global education unconference that will take place on Sunday. Uh, our Bloggers Cafe, which runs throughout the conference, as well as ISTE Live. If you've never presented before, we have a place for you to present, and we'll even stream it out live. So lots of fun, ISTEUnplugged.com. Coming up this Saturday, our all-day free worldwide social learning summit. That's um, sponsored by Discovery Education, 73 sessions right now all on Web 2.0 and social media and education. Go to sociallearningsummit.com or classroom20.com. Look for the link. Uh, we are having our second Future of Libraries conference sponsored by San Jose State University in October, October 3rd through 5th. And then in November, our third global education conference, five days, 24 hours a day, three to 500 sessions. If you've never been to this, it is a blast. Coming up uh, next week, Julie Lindsay and Vicki Davis talk to us about their book, Flattening Classrooms. Richie Norton then talks to us about his ebook, Resumes Are Dead and What to Do About It. Larry Johnson comes on to talk about the um, Horizon Report, the uh, regular report on technologies in education. Uh, Buffy Hamilton and Kristen Fonticario to talk about school libraries, their um, actual book. Mark Bauerlein talks about the digital divide, John Idelson on learning in ePortfolios, Elizabeth Merritt on the future of museums, lots, lots more. Come to futureofeducation.com to see the full schedule. If you've missed any sessions, they are recorded. 
in full collaborate form and in MP3. Yesterday we heard from Tracy Weiland Argenti on uh, Society 3.0, changes in society that are impacting higher ed. Mark Tucker talked to us about the highest performing countries and uh, industrial benchmarking. What do they do to be high performers? Jennifer Fox on strength-based education. Joseph Grinning on crucial conversations. Anyway, lots and lots of material there all recorded for you. So this is when you get to tell us where you are participating from. Look to the left of the white board, to the left of the map, look for the star icon. It's the second one down. Double click on that and then click on the map and feel free to also shout out in the chat. We've got Bangalore, India. I know we've got Nepal, right Govinda? Serbia, Charlottesville, Rhode Island, more Virginia, okay we're living the dream John, global participation. Yes we are, thanks for calling in and being a part of this program. So uh, John and Chris, uh, it really is delightful to have you here. I'm sure you go through this every time there is a presentation or conversation about uh, world peace and other fourth grade achievements. So I apologize that we're going to do it to you again, but we're going to show the shorter video clip so that those who are here can see that. And it, it'll take, I think it's about four minutes, but we're going to go to that right now. So bear with us. That's great. We, we enjoy that, actually. So this is the web the web page should be coming up for you from the worldpeacegame.org website. You'll see that the, at the top there's the original trailer. We're going to ask you each to click play, and I'll set the timer. It's a, it looks like it's a three-minute trailer. We'll set the timer. We'll come back in three minutes and get started. So click play on the original trailer. So some of you are saying you're getting access denied error, and that could be because because of the way that the URL is formed. So I'm going to make a quick change here, and let's see how this does. The YouTube page should be coming up now, and it should auto start. Okay, so I think the film should be done for everybody. But John, we're getting some fun comments in the chat. Miss um, Daly says she's so jealous. Chris Little says every time he sees this, he wants to be a fourth grader again. I feel like I'm beginning to get to know these kids. Well, you know that that is the key to the entire experience, too, Steve. That this relationship basis is what makes really everything go. And you can have policies that are not so great and policies that are wonderful, but. I think the key to making most successes, at least in my experience, is that, that basic caring you have between teacher and student. So tell us how the game works, how it works, how long it runs, how much time each day during the period of time that it's running, and then how you conclude the game. Oh my, this is, <laughs> it's a huge uh, structure, it's a physical structure that's four foot by four foot by four foot a towering plexiglass structure. And there are four 
four-foot-by-four-foot horizontal planes of plexiglass stacked up one above the other. You've got space between each one. So essentially, it just about towers over the, the tallest student in our class. And on each level, starting with the bottom level, that's the undersea level. You've got all sorts of undersea mining and submarines and that kind of thing, and uh, sunken cities and uh, coral reefs and so forth. The next level, at about knee height for most students, you find uh, the, the main surface of the world. You've got cities and factories and towns and geographical landscape features, and armies, navies, uh, and that sort of thing, too. And you move up to the level uh, that is about at their shoulder level, I guess, would be the aircraft level. And there's colored string to mark off territorial airspaces above the countries below. And you've got giant puffs of cotton that are pushed around for clouds by the random weather guns. We have random weather and random stock markets in the game and so forth. And on the top level, that is just above their heads, is the, that's the outer space level. This plexiglass layer has um, black holes and scattered bits of crystal for stars space station, satellite research, asteroid mining, that kind of thing. And so there, that's the physical structure. And on each side, there's a country team. There are four country teams divided into their cabinets, essentially, with prime minister, secretary of state, minister of defense, and a CFO, chief financial officer. There's a World um, Bank organization, the United Nations organization, and even a group of arms dealers. So about 25 to 30 students are divided into those groups. And I choose the leaders, and they choose their own teams and cabinets. And then we take about a 13-page crisis document, 50 different interlocking problems, global-level problems. And uh, they're put together so that if one thing changes in seeking the solution, everything changes. They're intertwined. And their mission, the two goals of the game, are to solve all the problems without combat if possible. And they read Sun Tzu's The Art of War to think about doing that. And the other goal is to raise every country's asset value by the end of the game so that essentially everybody wins. Yet they start the game in complete conflict and opposition to each other on every level, in every way, economically, militarily, and socially. And the final element is a saboteur, a confusion agent, uh, usually a very high-functioning high child that's asked secretly to function as a, a sort of disa uh, a disabler, a person who goes around spreading disinformation, uh, rumors, misdirection. They can't outright lie, but they have to sort of create an environment where everybody knows this person is there, but they don't know who it is. That environment is so that you have to question everything more deeply, even from your closest intimates in the game. That's essentially how it works. It goes over about eight weeks, depending on our master school schedule. I might see the kids in a pull-out class situation, say, once a week or twice a week. And the, gift, the definition of giftedness, you know, I'm a gifted and talented teacher, has so expanded over the last three decades now that anyone could be gifted under different circumstances at different times. So I might see in a child's four or five year career in my school, going from kindergarten through fifth grade, I might see 50, 60% of the students come through that class for different experiences. And the World Peace Game is one thing that we do under the program mandate that I have. John, it feels like the, the program exists at two levels one of which is a deep personal commitment from you for peace, and the other is a sense or understanding of the value and how to educate. Uh, am I right in thinking that the two kind of uniquely fit together in this project? Well, yes, yeah, see, that's right. And I think, you know, I, I had to really do a lot of uh, self-reflection about this because I have my own 
personal perspectives and biases and baggage, essentially. And what I uh, seek to do is to try and remove that or set that aside, at least those inhibiting parts, so that students can have free access to the actual experience without my coloring or my filtering. So I've designed the game so that I can't interfere once it starts. I'm still there as a guide and a help, but the policy making, the decisions the students have to make in the game are totally their own and often, quite often, they go against what I would do or what I would have or what I think is best. So I'm not really didactically trying to teach this is the right way or peace is the best thing. They're free to explore that for themselves and to find out what is the best thing through their own personal experience. And sometimes they go through warfare and come out the other side. You might have noticed David in the film clip, the little fellow who was living Sun Tzu, who went through warfare in the game quite a, quite a lot. And his understanding, the, the depth of the engagement I think he gained, it is something that's so far beyond what I could possibly create a test for because he experienced it and I did not, I was not able to stop him or to inhibit his learning even in a way that I did not approve of personally. I had to allow the experience and our trust and our relationship, I think, is what allows us to do that. And I guess you, you're right that my faith in their collective wisdom and in the relationship we have had together makes that trust uh, a worthy thing and that we can really depend on it. David the one with the kind of hoarse voice, and is he the one later that you indicate is serving as a page at a um, state legislative level? That, that's right, Steve. He's in the he's a page in Virginia Senate, I believe now, and this is of course what six or seven years later. So he's a tenth grader now, then he's a ninth grader, and uh, it's just a wonderful thing to see that kind of evolution. But you could see that in him if you knew him as a person. Early on, you could see what kind of potential was there. and So I, I had an intuition about that, and that's why I asked him to be a leader. He certainly is that little fellow who says, yeah, I'm, I'm living what Sun Tzu said, which is just such a, it gives me chills every time I see that, that, that depth of engagement that a student might, might enjoy through experiences like this. So you talk about clearing a space to make meaning of your own understanding. And I'm sensing that that comes from your own kind of educational learning journey. But it's also, and it, uh, I feel like it's a, it's a moment for us to reflect on sometimes the kind of pressure situations that we've created, especially in high stakes testing, that don't allow for that kind of time or space. Th does the game help you to do that? Yes, yeah, Steve, I, I would hope so, and I, and I think so. Um, that's kind of been a theme throughout my life. Whenever there's been pressure or intensity or speed put to some equation that, that really uh, made me feel uncomfortable or that I had to move through quickly, the, the reaction almost would be to slow down rather than to speed up in, in that kind of uh, situation, which is odd. It's contrary. It's counter, uh, counter to what might the situation be. But that's what I've understood, and I guess my personal experiences have sort of reinforced that. What I've learned is that uh, what we call sometimes in the classroom lag time or think time is, is almost a way of life uh, with the game. We build in periods of reflection where we all stop and simply think about something that's happened. We just call a, a space. And it may not even be thinking, it just may be feeling what's going on. And that, that subtext, that subtle other layer of feeling and emotion and intuition and understanding that's not intellectual or quantifiable, that has a huge impact upon what we're really doing. And we often, because we're so 
uh, interested in data and quantification, we ignore that level of, of this deep understanding, and we, we don't even attempt to measure that we don't think we can, but we don't attempt to measure it or even to, to count it. It's discounted quite often. And what I'm finding now, students come back after many years of being away from me, 10, 20, 30 years, and they let me know a, a kind of an assessment over 20, 30 years, an assessment. You know, usually we have an assessment after a lesson or after a day or after a week. And they're giving me this assessment of something I did in class that we did together 20 years long. And I thought, what a depth of understanding. There's no way you can even prepare to test for that. And yet here's the proof of it coming back to me as they talk to me about what we did and how it worked and how it affected their lives. One of my favorite quotes from reading about you was, that it said, you used to think assessment came immediately, but now you're learning otherwise. We're not just teaching the children in front of us. We're reaching through time to generations and decades in front of us. Yeah, see, that, that was a, it came to me like a thunderbolt, because um, Chris and I were giving a talk at a university in Virginia. And a student, or, or an old man, an older man sitting in the back of the room stood up. And it turns out this, this, shot, this older fellow was a former student of mine from 30, 40, 33 years ago. He was a, one of the first World Peace Game players. He stood up and he just talked so poignantly about the experience of being in that game in its fledgling state even then with me that long ago. And it was so moving to me. And he talked about how that gesture, that action, that game, that experience, things I had said and done that, of course, I had long ago forgotten, affected him and affected the way he became in his life and how his children were affected by that experience because he would teach them about that and how his grandchild, he would teach some of that to them too. And, and I just got this startling sensation of, of having said something dozens of years ago that reached through time, that, that came from so far back and went so far into the future, into this grandchild's life, and the effect they may have upon their children and grandchildren. And it just was a, a huge, a sudden feeling of huge responsibility. And I think all teachers probably maybe have moments of feeling that when you just feel as if you're deeply connected to everyone and everything, and that everything you do is important. Just brought that home to me, that everything you do and say can be the life-changing thing for every student. And so what you do in the classroom is vitally important every moment. And the only way to keep up with that, of course, is to reflect upon one, oneself, see who you are and what you're doing, and continually clear away the baggage to create the space for yourself and for the students. the teachers who really made that kind of a deep connection with our children, uh, where, where our kids have just loved the, the class, the material, and the teacher. Um, and I put a chat, a link in the chat to your page with the core principles. Is there anything else you would want to say that sort of deeply drives you with regard to thinking about education? Um. Great question, Steve. That opens the door for me to talk for hours. I'll try not to. But, but you know, I, th I think we really summed it up in this core principles. I tried to. And again, those are based on my personal experience. Other teachers might have other or additional or uh, all kinds of uh, variations on those things. But uh, the core, the key of it, of course, starts with the relationship. 
And I, I've seen policies come and policies go over these many decades, and sometimes they're draconian. They're just harsh policies, and these teachers seem to think so. And we suffer, we strive, we, we maybe succeed sometimes under them. Sometimes great policies come, and wonderful administrators are in place to help us do these things, and that the program succeeds. But I think it always comes down to the relationship, even under harsh conditions. Uh, great teachers seem to thrive as much as possible, and students rise to that because they know the teacher cares about them so much and has such a great uh, supportive attitude and, and really love for them, love and affection. And, you know, teachers can do that, I've found in my career, because of outstanding, visionary, supportive, and trusting administrators. I mean, you, you really can do very little without that kind of support in the front office. And I say front office and great administrators often are in the office. They're in the building. I have a great administrator now, Michelle Kastner, who's, you know, and you have to go find her because she's not in her office with anything you're looking for. But there's a trust and a support and an understanding. You know, she hired me. She said, I hired you. I trust you. You're a professional. I know you can do this. So just let me know what you need to do to support you and teaching children. And I'll come and see how it goes and help you all I can. So that kind of visionary leadership, trusting relationship with the children to start with and building on that. And finally, I think yeah, the understanding of each individual child as much as possible and then letting their passion, their personality, their uniqueness drive the development of curriculum, which is almost contrary. Usually curriculum comes from on high on down. But I've found that if you can know the student, find out what that hook is, what their passion is, you can start to build curriculum around and to that so that they become excited because they believe you first respect them, you respect what they like and what they're interested in, and that you support that and they feel that they are valued and what they're interested in is valued. Meanwhile, you are subtly putting in all kinds of learning skills that they had no intention of going after in the guise of something that they love. They feel it's theirs, they feel they own it, and yet you're really co-creating that curriculum for that student, and they feel as if it's their classroom, their curriculum, their learning, and they're in charge of that. So if I read the story, the history correctly, you started in 1978 at Richmond Community High School. So how age-specific is this, and is there something special about fourth graders, or is that just sort of where you were? Uh, it, it really has depended on my career. It started with a gifted high school, and I actually played with adults at some point in Norway, which is a fascinating experience. And uh, I, I generally, because I'm certified as an elementary uh, and gifted, uh, had those endorsements. I've generally worked in elementary schools for most of my career, middle schools, high schools too. But fourth grade uh, has been where the game seems to rest or, or exist most effectively. Uh, high school level students play a really sophisticated game. It's just astounding to watch high school students play this game and what they come up with. There's no doubt in my mind that a good group of high school students could really fix most everything they're facing. It's just an astounding exercise to watch happen at that level. But fourth grade, I think we have this sort of wide open wonder and a not quite secure handle on the reality uh, as we adults know it that allows for much more free-ranging creativity, and much more fun. I've attempted it with third graders that they don't seem to quite simply have enough 
wherewithal in the world yet. Uh, but fourth grade is, is just ideal and a fantastic thing. And also we have now mixed group, mixed age groups that I do uh, play with in a summer academy in Charlottesville, Virginia, and there'll be one in Memphis this summer with our partner, the Martin Institute for Teaching Excellence, which has recently made a second uh, game structure for us, a traveling game structure. That one will be in Memphis this summer. And so we play with mixed age groups. We have a nine-year-old prime minister. We've got a 17-year-old secretary of state, a 12-year-old CFO, and a minister of defense who's maybe 13. So it's a really interesting thing. I remember the time we had a World Bank president who was uh, just barely nine, just just uh, left the age of eight, and he turned to class and said, how many zeros in a trillion? We haven't done that yet in class. I don't know. Help me out here. He was trying to set physical policy as, as a nine-year-old or a group of uh, teenagers as well. So uh, we're going to switch over now to, to ask Chris a couple questions. Uh, Chris, how did you meet John? Um, really simple. Uh, it was a mutual acquaintance that brought me into John's classroom. And uh, so it was just one of those things where I came in with the idea. Um, I mean, it was actually her idea. I said, I think you should watch this uh, teacher and this exercise um, with thinking about a film. And for me, it wasn't the game at that point. It was just watching John work with students. Um, it was a really beautiful thing. Uh, the relationship that he had, the students were so engaged. You know, and John's such a master at the at teaching in terms of the, he talked about it a little bit, the respect, the compassion, the listening, that he really gets to reaches to the full potential of these kids. And it was a beautiful thing to see, and I was um, simply moved by it and thought that if I could share that sense of emotion that it evoked in me with an audience, that it would be a film worth making. It seems from your background that you, that you kind of focus on local or community level stories. Was there something about this where you were hoping that, I'm guessing yes, that the, the John and the kinds of things John was doing would get greater recognition outside of his local community? Well, to be honest, I'm pretty, I don't know if it's a Catholic background or just an experience with independent film, but I don't expect uh, too much <laughs> to happen, so I can't say. I thought that that should be the case, but I can't say that practically I expected that to be the case. Um, it, it's such a struggle even to get the funding to make the film, to think that there would be a wide audience is something you hope for. I mean, the, the, the things that John does in his classroom, both you know, from his relationship with his students, but also the, the lessons taught in the world peace game, the, the levels, you know, I mean, the way we talk about it is, is putting it more on a values level, it's really the work of peace with the emphasis on the word work, um, the collaboration, the communication, the compromise, the willingness to stand up for yourselves when you have to, but also the attempt to understand different perspectives. And then ultimately, it, it, it comes down to looking within themselves for the answers to questions that don't have simple by the wrong answers. And, and then overall, there's this sense of, in order to take care of yourself, you really have to start by taking care of others. And, and to me, I mean, that's an absolutely brilliant lesson, something I can't imagine anything more important than we can teach our children. So I'd always hoped that it would be something that would be shared with a wider audience. But I can't say in any way I expected that we would you know, on a, on a simple level, be going to the Pentagon one month and the United Nations the next. 
because <laughs> so I, I haven't had that level of uh, wide reception to my work before. I get the feeling it's not easy to be an independent filmmaker. Are you still in debt on the film? That actually, Manna from Heaven was the Martin Institute for Teaching Excellence, um, in many ways, and one of which was financial. This project, I met John seven years ago, I think we filmed about five and a half years ago. Um, we, I literally just got out of debt in January, and part of that was securing the underwriting for the broadcast on public television. And, and so the Martin Institute was instrumental to that in serving as an underwriter and also bringing aboard the FedEx Corporation as another underwriter. But even more importantly, I mean, the, the financials, I, can, I could always complain about that, but the, the Martin Institute has really <clears throat> taken on a role to kind of John's work and the educational work has really found a home. So I think they're, with their logistical support and their know-how, and, and they're also the real strong uh, affinity they understand John's work in such a great way, and they really share in the mission of spreading this level of this level of influence. This idea of which, what and how John teaches is something that really would would benefit us all as, if we, as we apply it to this new century. Um, I think that's been a really uh, very much a godsend, and that it's something that I could have not managed, and, and really John could have not managed on his own either. But with with their support we now can really see this level of uh, kind of wide educational impact that's going to be created by it, including from the, I mean, John will talk about it later, but the master classes that they've begun to set up for this summer where John's going to be essentially a teacher of teachers, small groups of teachers around the country, in, uh, small kind of master classes. So we're just very excited, and it, and it really has turned around in that level literally within the last few months. John? Are you still doing bus duty? <laughs> yes, I am. That's a really well. I love bus duty. <laughs> you know, you have duties. Everybody pitches in in the school, you know, and all teachers have something extra to do. And I'm sure all teachers out there are going, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. But, yeah, I go out on the, the circle in the morning and the parents, I'm actually on the parent drop-off lane usually, and there's four or five uh, educators out there, and we open car doors, make sure they get out of the car safely and are escorted uh, off the circle uh, in a safe way. And in the morning, you get to have those brief conversations. And my conversation usually is very brief, but it's something like uh, I open the door and out pops this happy bundle or whatever, you know, and they're ready to go. And I say, there's one more chance for greatness. And, you know, you, you, you get struck by the idea that there's so many opportunities for a child or so many children to do something great just that day and who knows where that could lead, and who, whose car door could you be opening? You could be opening a Nobel laureate, a future Nobel laureate's car door. You could be opening the person who comes up with a cure for cancer. You could be opening that car door. So it's, it's a momentous moment for me, in a way, because we're opening the door to the future. Every time I step out on bus duty, it's like looking ahead into time again. It's just unknown, but it's going to be great. I'm kind of stunned, Chris, by the seven-year time frame of the film filming to to getting it out, and I think it premiered two years ago. Um, as you've looked at the ecosystem of educational films that has really developed, Waiting for Superman, Race to Nowhere, many others, how do you how does World Peace fit into that picture? And are there some of those films that you've really liked, and others that you haven't liked as much? 
Well, I, I try not to denigrate. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, this was a very much an under the radar project with, with, you know, and it was completely underfunded. And that's really the main reason for the seven year. I mean, part of it, we've been putting it out kind of festival by festival, individual by individual, step by step for the last couple of years. But the, the making of it certainly was um, took so long because we didn't have funding. Um, so I was kind of, uh, I'm trying to think, impressed is not the word. I was scared is the word. When we came out, and it was literally a month or two after waiting for Superman premiered at Sundance. We were at South by Southwest, just two months later. And, you know, I, I was feeling that, okay, the way film festivals often work is they will be choosing one film of a certain theme, and, and certainly we weren't going to be able to compete with a film that had such national attention. Um, and then when I watched the film Waiting for Superman, I mean, I have to admit, I have my own biases, and, and my one kind of immediate concern was I feel like they didn't pay much attention to teachers on the ground. And, and, you know, my, and this is just my own viewpoint, I'm certainly no expert on education by any stretch, but but for me, I, I just as an individual in our society, I get a little tired of the bomb throwing that seems to happen in a kind of more political world where it forgets the individuals who are doing the work. And so I was pretty pleased that I represented a, that really just play, played a part in making a film it really pays homage to the wonderful teaching that goes on on a daily basis in classrooms all across the country, and, and now that we've become international, really all across the world. And it was something that I feel that shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, I have an interesting perspective in that when I started this film, I had a two-and-a-half-year-old and a baby on the way, and now it's a third and first grader. And so I've benefited by just tremendous Tremendously great and loving teachers for both of my children, both in the preschool situation and now in the local public school where, where I live. Not in the same school as John, but we're in the same town. And and just to, I just think that that, that that we often forget the individuals, and, and I think that's a shame. And 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 so when people are talking about the new trends and the, the new the issues and the new way to confront that they are forgetting what personal effect that has on individuals that really have chosen this profession certainly not to make money, but because they really have an idealistic sense of what good they can do as they teach our children. And so if the film, I mean, the clip doesn't show it, but one of the really great things about the film, not the, about the issue, is that John's mother was, was also a teacher. And so when he talks about the effect that his mother had on him and her teaching, film becomes a little bit broader in that it really is now talking about teaching and not just about a teacher. And, and in my mind, the film really pays homage to the profession. So for me, I was, uh, you know, there's other rewards besides the, the frustrations of being an independent filmmaker and, and to be part of something that you feel honors individuals that don't really get much recognition or thanks uh, was something that I, you know, that I treasure myself. I watched the interview of the two of you that took place at, at the Google Books, or it was the Google interviews, or Google speakers, and I was struck by something. I'm curious if you, if this was the same impression that you had as you left that event. It almost felt like you got grilled a little 
by people who wanted you to scale and get more professional more quickly. And I kind of felt like that was maybe even a little bit counter to what you were sort of trying to showcase. Did you leave with the same impression? Uh, and I guess in a way, I <laughs> coming to the valley of Silicon Valley, in some ways I guess I expected that. Um, I think they're used to thinking pretty big and, and pretty globally. And, and, and we're not, I mean, I, I'll defer to John in terms of the broader replication of the exercise, but I, I don't say that we're adverse to that happening. But on the other hand, it's something that I think really has to grow intrinsically for the principles and of that underlie the game and underline John's teaching to really be applied properly and not be, in a sense, diverted or, or abused. And so for the people that feel that they see this thing and they say, ah, oh, this should be in every classroom, I think in, in many ways they're taking a bit of a simplistic approach to it and not understanding that 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 wisdom that lies in John is also very much based in his understanding of his particular children. And so to, to, to talk about that with another teacher is not something that you can simply say, okay, John did it this way, so you do it this way, because it really has so much to do with the identity of the particular teacher. So in many ways, it's looking at that teacher and finding his own strengths and so perhaps, the, at least for the film, it's, it's more of a sense of inspiring teachers to think about the potential that they would have in their own classroom, but also done in the way that they find within themselves, in the same way that John looks to his students to find the answers within themselves. Steve, I would second that, too, and just say that you know, we had a great reception at Google. It was just amazing for a fourth grade teacher to suddenly find themselves in, in such, with such a warm reception in one of the great uh, industries, you know, one of the great uh, originators of, of interesting, innovative techniques and so forth. And so this, this urge or this suggestion to move on and to get this out and to share it was certainly, uh, we certainly took that uh, uh, under advisement. But I think the, the thing that's helped all along has just been my understanding, and this, this comes from my mother, really, that you create a space and allow things to open and, and reveal themselves over time that superimposing a perspective or artificial goals on top of something that is naturally growing causes all kinds of conflicts. So I've never really pushed to have any part of this come about. Chris and I never had dreams that this would go beyond our, our small town, that we would, uh, any more than a few of our friends would ever see this work. So, you know, we've really not done essentially very much in, in, in a way that this has just come about because of its own Hopefully, its own value, its own worth. People have seen to recognize and helped help to bring that out. So we're simply trying to see what is unfolding, what's being revealed, and to follow that natural opening. And I think Sun Tzu would be very happy that we are following rather than trying to lead. We're trying to see what it is and, and be true to it. So we'll have to see what happens. And, and there's not really a, a hard and fast plan on what this should be, what it can become. It's good that other teachers have their own way, and we can't uh, interfere with that. We can all support each other. But other teachers have what I have. The, the game is a Trojan horse, really. It's just a sleight of hand. It's just an excuse or a pretense for, you know, develop helping students develop a set of tools, thinking tools and uh, critical and creative thinking tools, and even create their own tools whereby they can then 
tackle any problem and feel confident in the future in any situation. And I think all teachers try to develop their own Trojan horse method to really get at the essence of what we're trying to do in education. Those were really thoughtful answers, and I'm sorry that you can't <laughs> be in the actual room because I'm clapping and cheering for you. So, John, I want to um, ask you, uh, how has your own sort of personal journey informed your teaching? You, you talk about your mom. I think you traveled uh, you know, a fair amount uh, when you were college age. How have these things impacted your worldview? Uh, well, see, I'll, st I'll start back at the, with the family. You know, your parents are so critical. They're your first teachers, uh, no matter their style or effort, that they, they have made some effort so that you can be here. And without that effort, you would not be able. You would not have survived. So I owe great respect to my parents, my mother, and my father, both uniquely different kinds of thinkers. But essentially, uh, what came out of that, I think, for the educational background I had in the World Peace Game, was that their approach was. Uh, I've called it before the shadow school. You know, there's a spotlight school, I guess, at least in my culture back in the 50s and 60s, uh, in American culture, and there's a, a shadow school. The spotlight school, in, in the situation I grew up in, the segregated South, was uh, people in our community who would step forward and take the heat or step forward and, and be seen and be recognized as being uh, the voice of conscience. And they took awful, I mean, dreadful risk and dangerous risk to, to do these things. And others of us who could not afford to take such risk or were other, otherwise inclined would work in the shadows. And my parents really had this kind of shadow school approach so that you almost wouldn't see what they were doing, but they were working tirelessly behind the scenes to make changes in a quiet way that almost no one would know until the change had been effected. So I think that approach to things has, has informed my educational uh, approach, really, that this... Uh, approach of this working quiet in the background and as Chris would say negotiating renegotiating and renegotiating over and over again in a calm quiet tone uh, to never really surrender never really give up but to, to maintain civility and, and harmony and compassion for even the opposing side which takes work and takes effort you know to keep people in the conversation with you to stay in the conversation and so those kinds of things of course led me to seek other cultures and other people who are doing things in a different way. And that landed me in India and China and Japan where I was uh, traveling here and there and, and trying to seek wisdom from people who've done it different ways for thousands of years. And I, I, I say always that I had such a fabulous, fabulous time that people really supported me. They took pity on me. There's some young American kid coming over here trying to see what we've been doing and they just they really had great mercy on me and allowed me to stay and to learn from them and with them. And so I, I was just so fortunate to have that kind of uh, kindness extended. And so that also informed uh, my teaching that I could go amongst strangers and be received well and kindly. And it opened the trust in me and the, the, the feeling of understanding that people can love and help each other even when they don't speak the same language. And so all of that, of course, I think goes into... My, my particular background, and every teacher does it, does it comes to this in a different way. It's just one flavor, that, uh, one color of that rainbow, really, that all these teachers, we, we all put our shoulders to that wheel. You know, we're all trying to do it in many different ways. And that's just my particular story, which is really 
no more unique or, or interesting than any teacher. And so I, you know, I applaud all teachers and look to any teacher as a colleague, as a mentor, as a friend, because we're all trying to do this, this same noble work. It's a noble calling, really. And so um, that's just my story. It's a unique story for me. <laughs> but I think all of us come to our own passion in a different and interesting way. So uh, Gandhi's emphasis on nonviolence obviously had a, a significant impact on you. Um, did his ability to mobilize for change, uh, has, has that led you to thinking in any specific ways about um, how we might change the current narratives around education? Oh, oh certainly. You know, I, I muse on this all the time. But uh, one thing I keep coming back to is that, you know, if I come to some understanding or conclusion in my own life, my own limited perspective, and, and want to put that out or share that as a way, then I've automatically created division. You know, I've automatically set up an opposition or a contrary or an opposite side. And I, I, I've understood that doesn't work. I may have an opinion, but what, what I've found best, and through things like the World Peace Game, I see this reinforced every time I see it, if I simply set you aside for the moment and allow the, the actions, the, the understanding, the awareness, the, the efforts of everyone present to go to work, then often we all come up with something that is beyond all of our perspectives or views or integrates all of our perspectives or views. But it's that allowing, that not having a specific way or a right way to do things. So I might uh, feel strongly about ahimsa uh, and nonviolence and Gandhi's methods and so forth and want to implement them in my life. But I can't, uh, in my classrooms, go out and say, now, boys and girls, this is what I want you to believe. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to, to live. This is, this is contrary to everything that I've understood in my life. I have to facilitate or design a situation whereby they discover for themselves the most harmonious way to live and the most harmonious way to, to be. And the, the, the depth of that experience, the depth of that engagement, of course, is based in relationships. So it's actually trying not to form a particular way or method. As I said the other day, there'll, be, there'll never be a John Hunter method. <laughs> I mean, the only method that I can find is to let us look and see, let us reflect on ourselves, and then open to the situation and work together to see what we can see together. You know, separately, I'm only seeing a small, small part. But together, we have a much larger eye, a much larger vision of things, it appears. And so that's my experience. And I, I try to continually work on myself so I don't fall into that trap. It's a continual struggle. I wrestle with it every time I go into a classroom to allow myself to stand aside to let that greater wisdom, that greater collectivity of understanding go to work. There's a lot of great response in the chat. and, and um feels like uh, a real privilege to get to know you, John. Is your mom still living? No, she, she passed away in 1996, and it was a tremendous uh, thing, of course. But, you know, see, the interesting thing was because of uh, who she was and what she did, that legacy, it, it, in a way, it's as if she never left. And that's a very moving and astounding thing for me to feel my mother's presence in the classroom or to feel I'm walking her footsteps or feel her gesture coming through the way I act and behave in my classroom. 
and it's as if I'm a I'm a small part of her larger presence, her larger personality that never left. So that that's still a great support. So that lineage of teachers you have means so much. Every teacher you have, some of them are not extroverts, some of them are reticent or quiet or reserved, and they're not your ideal personality type for you as a student. But every teacher has something. And if you you're looking for it, and there's some kind of relationship there, you can find that or discover that that can empower you as a student. So I got that from my parents, my mother and my father, who is still alive. I used to still refrain from giving advice like I try to do. <laughs> and Dad, what do you think of this? Well, you know, what, what do you think of it? <laughs> so, you know, mother would appear that way. But uh, yeah, I think I think that uh, beginning and that background and lineage just carries through. It, it never dies. I think that's one of the most po poetic parts of your material is talking about viewing the film and not seeing yourself, but seeing the mannerisms and the the character traits and the, the the legacy of teachers that you loved in your own actions. Yeah, see that that uh, comes home to me every time I see Chris's film. Chris, Chris is a, I mean, it's a, it's a visionary piece of work. Even though I'm in it, it's just a beautiful film, and and I think the quietest approach that he brings to this film, his other films also, uh, Luke Forty and, and Main Street are just sort of quiet pieces of work that allow the people in them to speak, allow the subject to breathe. There's a lot of breathing. There's space in the films, really. And that's what attracted me and, and caused me to want to agree to do this because I saw his other works and I thought, this, this guy, if he can capture the chaos in this classroom process and that, with that quietest approach, I'm all for it. And so that kind of uh, venue, that kind of opening force, really just allowed so much to happen, and then we came together. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, Steve, I've forgotten the first part of your question. I get so carried away. And the other teachers. Oh, the other teachers. Well, that that part about having my colleagues around and, and seeing the lineages they, they carry and they have, and then in the film seeing myself, literally, seeing myself disappear, I see a gesture that is my mother's. I see Mr. Roussel smile. I see Miss Ethel J. Banks that stare she had, the master teacher she was, I could never be. And I see myself trying to emulate that or coming through me just out of habit and, and wish, wish, uh, desire to, to want to be like them. And that makes me connected to them and that makes them live forever with me. And it lives, it lives in my students. That means Miss Ethel J. Banks gets to teach generations of my students because I'm carrying her with me all the time. So one teacher goes through generation after generation even though they're not even present. But again, everything you do is so important in the classroom, you're affecting generations ahead because who knows who you're teaching and what their effect will be. And your offhand comment, your subtle gesture, a look you may get a student might make all the difference to that student in the world. And that student can change everything possible someday. We've only got a few minutes left. I want to give both of you a chance. Uh, Chris, I'd like to give you a chance to talk about where people can see the film and anything else that you'd like to say with regard to that. And then, John, I'd love to hear from you about resources on the site. And in particular, um, uh, what teachers can do who have found resonance with your material. So Chris, can we start with you? Sure. Um, Steve, as far as the practical on the film, um, well, if you're in Charlottesville, it'll be there Sunday, but also New York. We're finally getting to New York next Wednesday. 
at the IFC Center. It's a you know, screening where John and I will both be there um, on Wednesday and then we'll have the United Nations on Friday. But on a bigger scale, it's being distributed to public television stations across the country, as you mentioned, through American public television. And that's um, we, the way it works is we provide the feed for the film and then the stations will schedule it according to their own um, scheduling needs. But so we're just starting. We we know we've got a we've gotten a very favorable report in terms of we think a good eighty to ninety percent of the country's stations will be showing it. I can give you some just real specifics, but but a lot of these um, scheduling decisions haven't been made yet. We do know that on May 9th it'll be Richmond and Charlottesville. May twentieth it's in uh, on Philadelphia, San Francisco, Pittsburgh. May twenty seventh in New York. Um, and then I, I sprinkled throughout there screenings in, uh, or broadcast in Tampa and Atlanta, Lansing, I believe. And then we're just going to continue to receive these scheduling decisions. So they'll be on their you know, website at worldpeacegame.org. And we actually really asked people to contact their own local public television stations because there's still some that haven't made the decision to air it. And it would also be, um, you know, for them to hear from their educators, I think would be pretty important to both for them to make that a positive decision, but also to schedule it in a, in a slot that would be kind of create the greatest educational impact with the broadcast. John? Yes, uh, the, the, the game itself and the foundation of World Peace Game Foundation, worldpeacegame.org, has just come into being, and really that's taken uh, a firm footing because of this great partnership with uh, Brad Martin the Martin Institute uh, for Te Teaching Excellence in Memphis. And because of that, we've been able to uh, set up master classes, two-day master classes for teachers. Uh, and I'll be traveling all summer. We're going uh, as far as Jacksonville, San Francisco, Milwaukee, Seattle, Atlanta, Memphis, Houston, Philadelphia, and a number of other places where teachers can actually sign on. I think it's limited to about 30 teachers for a two-day experience where we're going to explore not necessarily what the John Hunter method is. <laughs> we're going to look really at trying to facilitate, to facilitate and enhance what teachers have within them already to bring their best game, their best workout, and to develop it with other master teachers on site to make a real legacy that can, can go forward with the empowerment of a, a collective wisdom, really. So the Martin Institute has been so helpful in setting it up we're really excited about that possibility. The foundation, of course, we have Facebook connections, Twitter, and, and so forth. And there's uh, a blog there that also recounts or is recounting now a current World Peace Games session that's going on with my fifth graders at Agnahurt School in Albemarle County, Virginia. So that all is a sort of source, the, the website, worldpeacegames.org, for most everything that's going on now. And I would say, too, that in our county, Albemarle County, uh, we have Pam Moran, who's a cutting-edge 21st century superintendent. I think you've interviewed her before, Steve. She's a fantastic visionary leader that also gets it and supports us tremendously. And that's a, a helpful um, thing to go forward with the Martin partnership. We're all sort of, we're all putting our shoulders to the wheel to try and make this go forward. And the game itself, we, we have a great connection with uh, IDO, a design firm in Silicon Valley that has been very gracious and kind and allowed us to come out and have a space with them for a time and, and think about how this game might go beyond uh, just uh, one teacher in one classroom. So there's the potential for possibly sharing with other people who would like to do it. And of course, I'm immediately realizing it won't be the same game 
going to be different from the way I'm doing it because each of us, uh, the game is designed to allow the facilitator and the, the relationships they have with the students who are playing to make it a different experience. The rules can even change during the game. It's a very fluid kind of dynamic environment to learn to work in. That might be a possible thing to share with other educators uh, far and wide. We have some international connections in Norway. And it looks like we'll be going to Taiwan to actually play the game this fall. And uh, internationally, we're getting quite a lot of interest. I think Chris's film is screened in Israel and South Korea. It's screened in the Middle East. Uh, it's screened, uh, I think there's even some screens in Estonia. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. But uh, Norway has been a uh, leader in that. And they, they're, they're in Bergen International Film Festival and Tour of Fosse. They're really instrumental in making sure that film lived in that country and lives there now. It's a portal that you can see it on the Internet there. It's in every school in Norway. And so that kind of reception just makes the reach and impact of what a single teacher can do uh, so great. And of course, I'm not just a single teacher. There's so many people whose shoulders I'm standing on, as I always say, to make this possible. There's no way Chris or I could have done this by ourselves. There's so many people to think we couldn't even take enough time to, on your program to, to thank all these people. But it's a collective effort of a large segment of, of people, of the population, who want to see this effort towards building tools for peace go forward. And so we're well-supported and well-loved by these people. And our website, Chris, with the Rosalia Films website, and rosaliafilms.com and worldpeacegame.org are the two um, instruments now where people can go and, and check in to see what's going on and join, be a part in helping us to make the changes they'd like to see happen. We've been showing those pages and the links in the room as you've been talking. Um, I, I want to thank you both. As a courtesy to our guests, we do try and end on time. And I want to thank you both for coming on, for coming in through the telephone. You did a terrific job. Really appreciate your being here. A lot of great comments in the chat now of appreciation for the work that both of you have done. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. Steve, what a pleasure, what a privilege. And thanks to all your listeners and participants, too. Thank you all. That was really terrific. We've been listening to John Hunter and Chris Farina talk about the film World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements and John's work in the classroom. Coming up on Monday, don't miss Julie, Lindsay, and Vicki Davis talking about flattening the classroom and their global projects. Richie Norton next week as well, and resumes are dead. What a terrific show. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thanks again to John and Chris. Take care and have a great day or night, depending on where you are.